You know, we all end up somewhere in life. But only a few people end up somewhere on purpose. And those are the ones with vision. You know, Walt Disney was a remarkable man with a remarkable vision. But when he first started out, he couldn't sell his illustrations, his cartoons to anybody. He was once employed by a newspaper who fired him because they said he didn't have any good ideas. There were people that told Walt Disney that he had no talent, but that just made him work harder. And those early days were tough, but this creative visionary kept going. Because you see, Walt Disney had a dream. And he came across a minister who was willing to pay him a little bit to draw advertising pictures for his church. And Disney took the job. He didn't even have a place to stay. And the church said, well, you can stay in our garage, which turned out to be mouse infested. And Walt Disney took it up, took him up on the offer, named one of the mice Mickey. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now, Walt Disney actually passed away a few years before Disney World in Orlando opened up. But on the day of the grand opening, there were many dignitaries and important people and mrs disney was there and they wanted someone wanted to say just the right thing at the right time and one of them leaned over to mrs disney and said wouldn't it be great if walt was here to see all of this today to which mrs disney replied if walt hadn't first seen it you wouldn't be seeing it today and see that's the difference that vision makes those with vision see possibilities where everyone else sees impossibilities Now, I imagine that the company or the organization that you work for has a vision statement. How many of you think you know what it is? Yeah, that's what I thought. They would be so proud. They put a lot of time into that, you know. But see, that's the problem with vision statements. They're meant to focus everything a person or a company does, but way too often they just end up on a plaque on the wall. Vision is by definition what you want to achieve or become. It's the image of the ideal future. See, vision answers the question, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? What are we going to work on that really matters? How can we only work on the things that really make a difference? See, and true vision becomes part of who we are. So I think it's fair to ask, what's the purpose of Grace Point Church? Now, if you're a covenant member or if you've been through our North Point new members class, hopefully you've run across this this saying before. But so as not to point anybody out, we're all going to read it together. The purpose, the Grace Point purpose is we have, if you read with me, we have a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission to build a great church for our great God. See, it was Jesus that gave us both the great commandment and the great commission. It was Jesus that said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength in Mark chapter 12. And then he gave us the great commission when he was about to leave this earth. And he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Now, anyone can have a vision of the future, can't they? But what's the difference between an effective vision and one that's ineffective? Consider these examples. The commissioner of the U.S. Office of Patents in 1899 said, 
everything that can be invented has been invented. 1899, Office of U.S. Patents. Now, there's a guy that needed some vision, wouldn't you say? Western Union once wrote a memo that said, the telephone has far too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of, of communication. Even more recently than that, the founder and the director of, or president of, of uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, a corporation that makes computers, said there is no reason why anyone would want a computer in their home. See, true vision is that elusive thing that dares to dream big dreams. That's why vision is important. Helen Keller, who was born blind and deaf and mute, was one time asked, what could be worse than being born blind? And she replied, having sight, but no vision. I read a story recently about a fifth grade Sunday school class whose teacher asked the, the students to go home out in their backyard and, and look up in the sky and count the number of stars in the sky. And so they did that and they came back and they reported the different numbers. Some of them said hundreds of stars. Some of them said thousands. Some even said millions. But there was one little boy who didn't say anything. And the teacher asked him, well, how many stars did you see? And he said, three. She said, three? How, how did you see only three stars? And the little boy shrugged and he goes, I don't know. I guess we just have a small backyard. <laughs> and when it comes to vision, that can be our problem, can it? We have a small backyard. And unless we have an unwavering focus on our vision, it's easy to get, get mired in the day-to-day -day routine, which businesses and churches are really good at. It's easy to do the same thing we've always done because it's comfortable, it's convenient, and it's familiar. But we, as Christ followers, in particular, should have a vision that goes way beyond ourselves. If not us, who should be living with a perspective of eternity, then who? The problem with vision is that true vision creates a tension, doesn't it? A, a tension between the status quo and the possibilities of the future. A tension between the way things are and the way they could be. Because, see, if vision merely reflects the status quo, then it's not really vision, is it? But way too often we let this tension pull our vision down to reflect the status quo, to soften our vision, to make things more consistent with the way things are instead of the possibilities of the future. And into this tension, from 2,000 years away, the Word of God speaks. Now, if you're not a Christ follower, you're not in the habit of reading Scripture, you may be surprised to find that this book, as old as it is, is just as relevant today as the day that it was written. So we're going to look and see what the Bible says about what makes an effective vision. We're going to start out in the, in the book of Mark. And we're going to end up in a, in a few minutes in our, in our focal passage in Luke chapter 10. But we're going to start out in the book of Mark. And see what the Bible says about what makes an effective vision. Now the first thing we're going to see that is that an effective vision is compelling. An effective vision draws people in. I think it's fair to say that Jesus had a compelling vision. Why do I say that? It's not because there were thousands and thousands of people that followed him, although there were. 
It's not because his message was, was attractive to the disadvantaged or popular with the poor. How do I know that Jesus' vision was compelling? Because when he called the people that would ultimately be the closest to him, those young men and likely their late teens or their early 20s, when he called them, they couldn't possibly have known what to expect. They couldn't possibly have known what was going to happen to him. And yet when he called them, they immediately left everything and followed him. And how did Jesus call them? He cast a vision for what he expected of them. He cast a vision for their life. We see this in Mark chapter 1. We're only 17 verses into the first chapter of Mark. And it says, Mark 1.17, he said, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. See, Jesus' vision for their life was so compelling that they wholeheartedly left everything and followed him. They left their families in a, gener- in, a, in a culture where generations of extended family lived together in close proximity for their whole lives. They left their family. They left the family business, which in all likelihood they stood to inherit one day. And they left all their possessions. In fact, it's only nine chapters later when Peter tells Jesus, says, hey, you know, we left everything to follow you. I also know that Jesus' vision was compelling because of what happened in the years after Jesus' death, his resurrection, his return to heaven. He left 11 of these disciples that he called the closest ones to him. Of those 11, 10 died a martyr's death, often in very gruesome ways. Some were stoned. Some were beheaded. One was crucified upside down on a cross. Another was dragged through the streets by horses until they were dead. And why? Because Jesus' vision for them had compelled them. They were drawn in and they'd experienced the reality of it. And they were not going to let it go. Let's talk about what Grace Point's vision is for missions. Grace Point Church Missions exists to expose people of all nations to God's promise. So they might have a personal, lifelong relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, as with most vision statements, that's really a pretty dense package. But let me point out a couple of things. What is God's promise for the nations? It's actually the first one of the first verses that we learn when we come to church, probably. I ask you to read it with me in John 316. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So God's promise is for who? Not just those that happen to be in the right place at the right time. But God's promise is for the whole wide world. See, that's why we go to West Africa. But that's also why we go to the Boys and Girls Club. That's why we go to Asia. But that's also why we reach out to our community with hope and action days. That's why we go to South America. But that's also why we go to Joplin and more for tornado relief. That's why we have some that go to Wilmot, Arkansas. But that's also why we want to serve the orphans and foster families in northwest Arkansas. And so we see that an effective vision is one that is compelling. It draws people in. But if that's all it does... Its effectiveness is limited. An effective vision not only is compelling, but it is propelling. 
See, Jesus didn't gather these people around him so that they could be fed or see miracles. Jesus didn't call those to come follow him so that they could be entertained and and see a bunch of healings and maybe hear some great teaching. Fortunately for us, Jesus tells us exactly why he called those to follow him. In the third chapter of Mark, Mark 3, 14, it says, He appointed 12, he meaning Jesus, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out. That's why he appointed, that's why he called them. And as we're going to see, this didn't just apply to the 12. Jesus did everything he did so that his followers would go out and be witnesses of what they'd experienced with him. And there came a time after Jesus had compelled those to follow him, after they'd been with him for a time, that he gave them an assignment. He propelled them out. And we're going to look at that in Luke chapter 10, which is our focal passage for this morning. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72. And in your translation, it may say 70. Pick the one you want. I'm going with 72. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place he was about to go. And then much as... You would, if when you give your teenager the keys to the car, he gave them a series of instructions, a series of warnings. Verse 2, he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Verse 3, go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and don't greet anyone on the road. Verse 5, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it'll return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking, whatever they give you. For the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. And then verse 8. When you enter a town and are welcome, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, this was a radical assignment. We don't know whether these young men or these 72 had been to these villages, these towns before that Jesus was sending them to. But what we do know is they didn't make any reservations. They didn't know anybody in these villages. And he told them not to take anything with them. That's a pretty radical assignment, wouldn't you say? And yet, they went. Why? Because an effective vision creates momentum. It creates a growing anticipation about the future. Effective vision creates an excitement about the future that that trumps any anxiety or uncertainty. But see, vision is only effective if it's specific. A vision that is too general is neither compelling nor propelling. So let's put some meat on the bones, because today I want to talk to you about the introduction of what I'm calling our mission's core four. The pillars upon which our mission's vision is going to rest The first of our core four is orphans. Our mission statement is to support and encourage foster and adoptive families in northwest Arkansas and to help develop 50 foster or adoptive families in the next three years. Now, there are currently approximately 20 Grace Point families that are fostering or adopting. So, frankly, the idea of adding 50 more to that number is pretty staggering. And I'm not saying they have to all be members of Grace Point Church, but we want to be about developing and encouraging foster and adoptive care. See, I have a vision of Grace Point people serving foster children. 
This vision means that we have to help people understand what these children go through, what their life is like. Because we want to serve children whose birth home is inadequate to take care of them, at least for a time. We want to serve these children who need love and attention. We want to serve these children who have bounced perhaps from house to house, from shelter to shelter, from home to home, and are asking, does anyone love me? Did you know that there are, in our four counties, at any given time, there's a little bit over 400 children in state care. But there's only about 160 foster homes. So what happens to the other 250 children? They're shipped across the state to places where they have a little bit more room and they probably bounce from temporary shelter to group home, to home, to a house, to temporary shelter, back again. And most of us can't even identify with that kind of instability. What it does to a person, let alone a child, who doesn't know where they're going to sleep tonight, who carries everything they have in a black garbage sack. Most of us can't even identify with that. We can't identify with what that does to, to a child that says, does anybody want me? So this vision means that there are opportunities for us to serve. To serve to keep, to keep the children of foster families while the parents go enjoy a few hours of, uh, just together. In March, we had our first parents' night out, and we had approximately 37 people, 37 members of foster families. We kept the kids, and the parents went out. In May, we had our second one. We had about 55. Our next one is on August 16th. And when you go out, you'll have a chance to sign up for that. All we're doing is keeping children, so the, serving the foster families, those parents, so they can have some time alone. You would not believe the response we've gotten from that. They're like, nobody else is doing this. Nobody else cares about what we go through as foster parents. This also means there's an opportunity for you to serve, to provide guidance and leadership to kids. Did you know that for every mentor in the Boys and Girls Club, there's 10 students asking for a mentor? These are students between, the ages, between grades 5 and 8 that have already been identified as at risk, that is unlikely, to graduate from high school already in the fifth and eighth grade. And yet the requirement to mentor them is one hour a week. See, I have a vision of body life groups encircling foster families and supporting them, maybe bringing meals to a foster family when they first get a foster child for, for, for the first two or three days, maybe keeping their children while the foster parents do these court-directed appointments out to the courthouse, to visitation with the, with the birth parents, to doctor's appointments, doing whatever it takes, just loving on them and supporting these foster families. Beyond that, I have a vision of body life groups embracing foster families that are unchurched, showing them what the love of God looks like, maybe being the first church people that are accepting and not condemning, maybe being the first people to introduce them to Jesus Christ. Now, I know that some of you may be like me and you're saying, that sounds really good, but I know myself and I know my spouse. And if we were to get involved in foster care, I couldn't give them up. 
If I was to get too involved in foster care and those children knowing back the situations that they're going back to and the situations they come from, I couldn't give them up. Listen, I don't mean to be rude. So forgive me for being so bold. But it's not about you. It's not about you. There are opportunities when you came in, you may have seen in the gallery space, there are opportunities to get involved with foster children. Whether it's the parents' night out, whether it's mentoring, whatever it is, there's some opportunities out here in the table. I encourage you to go by there and, and see those and, and see what our mosaic ministry is about. You know, we called it mosaic because we want to be making beautiful things out of the broken pieces of people's lives. So I encourage you to get involved. So if our first of our core four is orphans, our second one is local. And under local, we want to aid the under-resourced in our community via efforts championed by Grace Point members. Isaiah summarized what we want to be about in the first three verses of Isaiah 61 when he said, The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners. One of our Grace Point mantras is that every, men, every member is a minister and every ministry is meaningful. So if God has laid on your heart a ministry and you want to bring a focus to it, we want to be here to support you. Whether that means supporting a food bank, whether that means organizing a walk to fund autism research, whether that means encouraging and enabling students to serve out in the community, whether that means a prison ministry, we're committed to support our members' callings to have an impact in our community. And not just so they can have an impact to say they made a difference, but to have an impact for the glory of our great God. Let's go back to our story in Luke chapter 10. Skip down a few verses to verse 17. It says, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. See, the 72 went. They were propelled. They went, and as a result, people that were stuck were set free. People who were sick, who could not provide for their families, were healed. People who were out of control, tortured by demons, living lives that most of us can't even identify, were liberated and renewed and invited into the kingdom of God. Oh, I want to be part of a church that is reaching out to the community to the under-resourced, to the broken-hearted, and to the captive. The third pillar of our core four is global. And our mission was summed up by Jesus. And we've already read this verse, but it's so good, I'm going to read it again. In the end of Matthew, Jesus, last words that Jesus spoke when he was here on this earth. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, it says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go see the propelling. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. So what's our global mission? In the next three years, we want to help plant five replicating churches among unreached people groups in the 1040 window. Now, I realize you may understand those words, but maybe the phrasing 
may cause some questions. So let me talk about them a little bit. A replicating church is a self-governing, self-supporting, replicating church. By God's grace, Grace Point helped plant a church in West Africa that is self-governing and self-supporting. And we're praying that it's going to be a catalyst to launch new churches. To be unreached is to be is to be born, to live and to die without ever hearing the gospel. Unless somebody comes. You realize, don't you, that there are billions of people that can't celebrate today what we sing about here every Sunday. And why can't they why can't they celebrate? Because they've never heard of Jesus. If you were to tell them about Jesus, they will say, is he from your town? Does he live down the street from you? What village is he in? I met a young man in December in Southeast Asia. I talked to him and I said, hey, listen, what do you know about? Have you ever heard of Jesus? And he goes, oh, yes. And I said, "Uh, well, what do you know about him? He said, oh, he's the God of Europe. They do not know. People groups. These are groups of people that share a culture and a language, like the Bambra of West Africa. I don't know if you're aware or not, but Grace Point Church has adopted the Bambra people in West Africa. More than 4 million people, just a little over 1%, are evangelical Christians. We are committed to taking the gospel to them. Beyond that, we are committed to enabling them and equipping them to take the gospel to their own people. The 1040 window. This is an imaginary window that represents the area of greatest lostness in the world. Most people living there have little or no access to the gospel. Two and a half billion people. One third of the world's population. And just like the 72 that Jesus sent out, there's a sense of urgency to the the mission. There is no time to waste. Jesus said in verse 4 of our story, he said, Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals. Don't even greet anybody on the road. That's how urgent the task is. My dad used to tell the story about an elderly lady in a village in Indonesia. He shared with her the gospel, how she could know the God that created her, how she could have a personal relationship with him through Jesus. And when he told her this, she asked a very haunting question. She said, if this is as important as you say it is, then why am I just now finding out about it? If this is as important and critical as you think it is, as you tell me it is, then why am I just finding out about it? It's a pretty valid question, don't you think? And my dad had to apologize to her on behalf of generations of Christ followers. See, it wasn't her fault that she hadn't heard. It's ours. It's our responsibility. And you might say two and a half billion people. How are we going to reach two and a half billion people? That's a staggering number. Maybe this idea of taking God's promise to the nations is way too big for us. I like Stephen Furtick's quote. He said, if your vision for your life is not intimidating to you, it's probably an insult to God. You know, we should be 
dumbfounded about how actually doable the task is of reaching the whole world. Do you know that for every unengaged, unreached people group, I talked about people groups a while ago. I talked about the fact they're unreached. They don't know a Christian. They probably don't have a church. They don't have the scripture in their language very likely. Those are unreached. There are thousands of unengaged unreached people groups, meaning nobody's even trying to reach them with the gospel. But for every unreached, unengaged people group, did you know that there are 1,400 Christian congregations around the world? There are more than 225,000 Christians, evangelical Christians, for every unreached, unengaged people group. Now, I know that most of these people are in places and under regimes that are hostile to Christianity. I'm not saying it'll be easy. I like what, Dave, what happened to David Livingston when he was a missionary in Africa a centuries ago. He said, a missionary society wrote to him and asked, says, have you found a good road to where you are? If so, we want to send other men to join you. And Livingston wrote back and he said, if you have men who will only come if they, know, if they know there's a good road, then I don't want them. He said, I want men who will come if there's no road at all. And so, see, it may be costly. But if we don't complete the vision that Jesus has given us in our generation, it won't be because it's too big. It won't be because it's too vague. It won't be because we didn't understand it. I like what Francis Chan said. He said, don't be afraid to fail. Instead, be afraid of succeeding at something that doesn't matter. As you came in in the gallery space out here, you'll see the opportunity for our, our global adventures over the, next, over the next six months. Three different areas of the world. I urge you to go by and talk to them. Maybe you need to sign up just to pray. I didn't mean just to pray, to pray. Maybe God's calling you to go. Maybe you just need to know how to pray better. But I urge you to go talk to them. The third principle of effective vision. An effective vision is compelling. It draws people in, but it's also propelling, sending people out. But an effective vision may be repelling. And you might say, really? If it's such a compelling vision and mission, how can it be repelling? Well, Jesus' message was unpopular at times, wasn't it? See, there came a time when the people that were following Jesus, those that come to see the miracles, to hear the great teaching, to be fed, they had had all they could take. And in John chapter 6, toward the end of that chapter, we see it says in verse 6, it says, On hearing this, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And a few verses later, it says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. See, Jesus knew that those 72 would face opposition to the gospel. He knew that, their, that their, their mission would not be popular. He knew it would not be well received. He even knew it would be dangerous. He said, what? I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. He knew that not everyone would be open to their message. Look in verse 16 of, of Luke 10. It says, Jesus told him, he said, whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. See, we can't let the fact that there are people that will reject us slow us down or deter us. It happened to Jesus, it'll happen to us. And like Jesus, we need to keep the end vision in mind. Look in verse 17, and we already read it. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Verse 18, he says, I know. 
I saw Satan fall like lightning. What he was saying was, while you were out there sharing the gospel, while you were out there healing the sick, you were participating in the defeat of evil in the world. You were participating in a pushing back of the spiritual darkness. How's that for a compelling and propelling vision? The fourth pillar of our core four isn't my vision at all. It's Jesus' vision. He gave it to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. We have it recorded in the last book of of the New Testament. Jesus gave John a glimpse of what the end times, or at least heaven, was going to look like. And And John recorded it in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. He says, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language. Standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were shouting with a great roar. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Now I have no idea what you see when you think of heaven. I don't know whether you see streets of gold or bright lights. Or you hear harps. Or you see angels fly. I don't know. And heaven may be all those things. But let me tell you what I see when I envision heaven. I see a sea of people. Millions and millions of people. Billions of people. And they're all doing the same thing. I hear them worshiping God in their own language. I hear Swahili and Mandarin and Spanish and Hindi and Bambara. I look over here and I see Abraham and I see Moses and Joshua and and Peter and Paul. I look down here and I see Avadesh and Maladas, two church planters that I know from northern India. I look down here and I see Armand and Naira, two Armenian believers that I met a couple of years ago. And down here I see Sudiono who came to Christ when my family lived in Indonesia. And I look over here and I see our friends from West Africa. I see Nanjan and Flake and Brema and Montanen and Madhu. And I look over here and I see Sarah Williams. You may not know who Sarah was. I never met Sarah. She passed away a few months before I came to Grace Point. But Sarah was a champion for the Bombra people. Of the first 20 Grace Point global adventures to West Africa, she was on at least 13 of them. On two different occasions, she lived in West Africa for extended periods of time. She was a champion for the Bombra. And I'm praying that God will raise up champions from those of us in this room, champions for the Bombra people. I'm looking for I'm praying for people that will go spend 30 and 60 and 90 days living in West Africa, because that's the kind of investment it's going to take to reach these people with the gospel. I'm praying that God will raise up a champion from among us in this room for the orphans and the foster children. I'm praying for a champion for women who are being trafficked. I'm praying for a champion for the brokenhearted, for the captive, for the prisoner. Because, see, I believe that God wants to pull us closer to his vision. To pull us, let this tension between the way things are and the way they could be 
to pull us close to him, to excite us, to fan the flame, to stretch us, and then to send us out. See, vision will never become reality without action. So I'm asking you today to pray like you've never prayed before. Pray for the unreached. Pray for those who have never heard. Pray for those who will never hear unless the church gets there soon. I'm asking you to give like you've never given before. For some of you, that may mean you're giving for the very first time so that the gospel can go around the world and across our country. For others, that may mean that you're giving sacrificially. I'm asking you to go like you've never gone before. For some, that'll mean going, mean going across town. That may mean going across the state or across the country. For some of you, it may mean going across the world. You know what God's calling you to do. Now, you may be here and you say, I know about Jesus, but if I'm completely honest, I've got to tell you, I don't know him in an intimate and personal way like you're talking about. There's been a time in my life when I felt Jesus call me. He says, come, follow me. But I'm not really sure what that means. If that's you, then I'm going to ask you to take that communication card in the seat pocket in front of you or come see me. I would love to talk to you and talk to you about where you are on your faith journey. I'm going to ask you all to stand. And we're going to have the band come out and sing. And I'm going to pray over us. As we sing, I'm going to ask you to let Jesus' vision of heaven to compel you, to draw you in. Allow Jesus' vision of heaven that we talked about to propel you, to send you out. Let me pray for us. Father God, you are majestic and holy, and we are so unworthy. So unworthy to be called your sons. And yet you've called us to yourself. You've drawn us in, and you've made it very clear that we are to go. Father, may we be so bold as to be obedient. I pray for each person in here, each soul in here, Father. But even more than that, I pray for the souls around the world that have never heard. Father God, we give it to you. Move us as you will. For your son's name we pray. Amen and amen.